Hey, Lee, how's it going? Good, good. I'm happy to meet you in Texas. Here we are at uh, the Blaze TV studios in Dallas, Texas, uh, the free republic of Texas, as I like to say. And uh, we are talking just a couple days before the June 4th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And you, were not, you and I were talking about this last week, and I thought it would uh, be really important that um, we tell that story, and particularly in the context of, of uh, where we are today in the United States and what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in China. Unfortunately, these things are all intertwined now. And I'm, I'm thinking um, what, what I want to get into is I see on social media more and more uh, progressives commenting that China is doing it right when it comes to COVID and lockdowns. And I want to get into that. But um, you've, you've done this show before. And uh, I'll just remind people, I don't want to get into it too much because we spent an hour just talking about your history as surviving Mao's Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And, and give us a quick recap of, of you growing up there but, and, and how you got here. Yeah, I was born in China in 1958. I want to say this year because that's the uh, Great Leap Forward and Mao started and followed by Great Famine, then followed by the Great Cultural Revolution, then Open and Reform. So I lived through the whole, whole um, journey uh, and survived it. So I would always love to tell my stories because I'm an eyewitness of the horror of uh, communism and uh, the evil of planned economy. Yeah, and um, your family was targeted and persecuted and you spent, um, I think, a dozen years working essentially um, as maybe slave labor is too strong of a term, but you were, you, you were. We would call it exiled. <laughs> exiled labor. Yeah. And, and the alternative was probably death. Probably. Or the family uh, split to all different directions. Even kids get to have to be sent to somewhere. And uh, we were very fortunate. Our whole family were exiled together for nine years from 19... Uh, 69 to 1978 and uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, be able to take the entrance examination when Chinese uh, University reopened after 10 years and I that was my only way out from the exile life and I passed the exam two out of thousand passed yeah and that's how I got myself out and my parents were able to go back to their city and the professional lives because the Chinese government just simply say, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. You can come back now. Your nine years or 10 years, whatever years of life didn't really matter. And that, then they tried to erase the crimes committed in that. Yes. Yes. They say, oh, we didn't, we, 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 we didn't do anything. And you got to the United States on a student visa. How did that happen? Uh, after I finished university and I got a job in the central uh, government, that time almost all the jobs in still government and also job was assigned by the government. For some reason, I was lucky to be assigned to a job in Beijing and uh, at the um, Department of Transportation uh, Highway Research Institute. It's a very elite place. And uh, so my first project was building the first freeway of China. And uh, I am responsible for a lot of terms and because uh, they didn't have terms for, you know, ramp, on ramp, off ramp, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, uh, but after that, uh, my parents were already in the United States as a scholar invited by different institutions in this country. And they told me, please come out to take a look because the different world. That time China was getting better and uh, I first first time I had my own job and my own income my own life I said oh I don't need to my father said just come out and see if you don't like it you can go back but many people don't have this opportunity you have it you should because they knew how our whole family we are n never fought 
followers of communism. We were never really brainwashed by them. We always had our opinion secretly. So they knew I would benefit by leaving China. So I did. And uh, I fall in love with this place, and uh, I never went back to live. I visited it, but I, yeah. So what, where did you arrive? Like, what was your first impression of the United States once you got here? Uh, I arrived first, actually, first I arrived in San Francisco. That was a direct flight. And my mother's cousin uh, welcomed me. And actually, uh, my sponsor, we, we all had to have a sponsor in order to get the U.S. visa. My sponsor also lived in San Francisco. So I spent about five days, I think, in San Francisco. And uh, I, I had terrible jet lag and uh, motion sickness because in China, we hardly even saw a car or ride a car. And so the airplane was bad. And in San Francisco, everywhere we, we went was on the, uh, in cars and uh, up and down, up and down. So the entire time I was in San Francisco, I was uh, motion sick. And uh, uh, everything's strange. They put the clothes in the washing machine and they dry it in the machine. And they took me to the department store and you can touch the merchandise. The merchandise is not behind the counter and you have to back them to show, show you. And you can touch it and the shoes, you can try it on. And they took me there and they got me clothes and got me shoes. I was so surprised. And the, so many choices of uh, restaurants. And I, I remember went to a pizza place that have a gigantic organ and the huge, the whole wall was the organ and uh, played music, it, I, I was just uh, so shocked on, on everything. And uh, they have big dogs in the house. Dogs are not food or... <laughs> and, just, uh, and then uh, my sponsor also have a, a boat. I don't remember what kind of sailboat or yacht. Now I don't remember. I just remember went to the uh, river with them and to put something onto the boat. I already so scared. I said, "Don't please don't take me on the boat. I'm still motion sickness." I said, "No, no, no. We're just scared to put something on there." Wow, you can have a boat, and uh, everything. I was just surprised on every single thing. Overwhelmed by the the freedom and the prosperity. Yes. That all young people in in America now take for granted. They just assume that it's there. So you, you're coming to America and, and decide not to go back. And back in China, I don't know the exact history of the, of the student movement and the protests that led to Tiananmen Square, but that, it sounds like that openness allowed people to discover that there was a better way of life, uh, one where you could speak your mind and, 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 and own yourself. Actually, this is a very interesting question, but it's a very complicated and complex uh, situation. Yes, openness. And China start to have thinkers because uh, it make us think. Because uh, the generation I grew up, we, our pop, uh, our fab was to say, oh, I just got a new book, very interesting. And uh, oh, what have you been reading? That's our thing as a teenager or a student as fashionable to get a book to read and to know a little bit more information, uh, truth about the world and uh, find a new dimension to see things and to think. That was so fashionable. We were just, uh, that's our generation. So there were still uh, uh, some scholars they survived the Cultural Revolution. They didn't give up. They returned, like my parents, returned to universities and uh, research institute and science, scientific uh, foundations or labs, whatever. Um, they breathed a new fresh air. So they said, oh, we can do something for good again. and. Uh, some thinkers, and especially 
economics, a field of economics was not didn't exist in China, only called political economics. It was just uh, Marxism. So people could separate economics and politics and start learning and thinking about it. So they saw the issue, the problem of communism, and they start thinking about alternatives. This is the level of uh, uh, intellectuals and scholars. And the students, they start to um, hear music from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, not United States yet, some Japanese. The most uh, influential were the Taiwanese, uh, they call campus music. And they said, oh, you can sing song this way? You can sing song with feelings? You can sing about love, about the moon, about a flower? You don't have to say, communism is my parents, I love you, that kind of thing. It was just so new, and people start, that became fashion. Yeah. And the student had opportunity to take TOEFL exam, to go to uh, United States to study, to leave China. So they start to uh, wanting to have a different life. And that's two uh, groups. The first group I talk about intellectuals, they were thinking about from deeper perspective, thinking about communism may not be the best or the way for China, but the students want something different, fashionable. They were wearing um, clothes they bought on the street and uh, the outsourcing factories, kind of some workers stole the, the, their um, product or those, uh, um, what do you call, uh, overproduced products and the Chinese uh, Workers will take it to the street. Surplus. Surplus, yeah, surplus yeah. right. Take onto the sidewalk to sell. First time the government didn't stop these kind of free market trade. Yeah. So most people, young people, were wearing these surplus clothes. They have labels like Sears and, uh, and things like that. So uh, they started to feel... The freedom empower them. They feel like they can choose in certain areas the way of life or their future. They can determine their future by themselves. That was very new because uh, in the past, nobody could determine anything of your life, even what to eat, what to wear, where to live, what school to go to, what job to get, who to marry to, everything. So the first time people felt, oh, I can choose this clothes. I can choose a girlfriend. I can choose an opportunity to leave China to go to a different country. So that's uh, very important. And then, of course, uh, uh, some others and start producing, writing books, producing uh, TV shows about different perspectives to look at Chinese history and Chinese culture. That's impact of people's thinking also. So uh, we have to, when we talk about Zhong Force, we have to talk about Hu Yaobang. Hu Yaobang was the second man under Deng Xiaoping for a while, and they have different opinions. And Deng Xiaoping uh, kicked him out of the leadership. Deng Xiaoping is uh, also a dictator, no different from Mao and, and Xi Jinping. But a lot of people loved Hu, Jintang, uh, uh, Hu Yaobang because he's thinking. So two years later, he died. And uh, the students want to memorialize him because they thought him was a hope for China. But now he so passed what, away. So what, what year is this? Uh, 1989. Okay. He passed away. Uh, April 15th, okay. 1989. And uh, so the student uh, and the universities, they still had the tradition of posting big posters. They started in, uh, it caused the uh, beginning of a cultural revolution. This also, they have also in, on campus, they have a democracy corner, just like High Park in England. 
the speech speakers corner. Yeah, they have that, and uh, so people start to gather there, and they saw some people posted some uh, words on the wall, memorializing who uh, Hu Yaobang and things like that. So people gather more and more, and and became a a movement uh, because it's so big and so many details. I I don't want to talk too much today here because there's a lot of story, a lot of survivors there all over the world, a lot of them in the United States and many of them in Europe too. And so they um, started to gather to, and then they marched to Tiananmen Square because that's where people gather. And also in 1919, on May 4th, the students of Beijing University and Tsinghua University went onto the street to protest. That's uh, Chinese government call it the Youth Day. They're still celebrating it. We are reflecting on that. Is that any good? Or what's the long-term and short-term impact, influence of Chinese history and, uh, and communists? That's uh, another big topic. It's very, very interesting. but. With that, the students still feel the spirit of that, so they started to march. Uh, at the beginning, they didn't have a clear agenda, and uh, they just uh, want to tell the government, tell the people, we love Hu, uh, Hu Yaobang, he's a clean government official, and too many corruptions. We want China to, a government, Communist Party to be more clean. Yeah. And then Deng Xiaoping, for him, his first priority, his agenda is stability for his power, for communist government. So he didn't want to tolerate this. He didn't want to have a conversation dialogue with the students. And he didn't want to uh Omit this is uh, legitimate, even though the Chinese constitution saying the people have a freedom to gather, to protest, to march. So this wasn't about ideology at all. This no, was at the this beginning. Was about, no, they they wanted to fight corruption. Right. And for him, it wasn't a, about ideology either. It no. was about control and power. Exactly. So he. Uh, labeled the students as anti-communism, anti-China, uh, and uh, riot, violent riot. So the students, at the beginning, they were just having this uh, good spirit to help the country to be better, and suddenly labeled these things. These are prison sentences. These are death penalties. They were over. Um, they were so angry. They said, "No, we are n not this at all." And they said they demand the government change, take away these labels. And they were more disciplined to never do anything like vandalism or riot or any of these. They. Even some leaders start pulling out uh, Gandhi's story, Mandela's story, to see how peaceful no, protest nonviolence yeah, yeah goes, and uh, they start to went onto the street to demand open dialogue, freedom of press because the media they were very sympathetic. A lot of them had the same way of thinking of the student. They want to report, but they couldn't. And uh, one news anchor was even in tears. And of course, he was in, in trouble, big trouble later on, but that's later on. They, they want uh, freedom of press. They want uh, dialogue. And they want remove of these uh, accusations. Very clear, became very clear. I asked them, I asked these survivors, I said, did you have any intention to overthrow the communist government? 
did you have any intention to change, uh, to, uh, get rid of uh, communism? They said no. All of them said no. They start marching and singing international. Those are, I call them communist, uh, international communist anthem, right? They start even having banners written, we support the Communist Party, we love the country. They say that's their strategy. But they didn't even, they didn't have the intention to say opposite. Mm -hmm. But Chinese government refused. Some officials invited the student for dialogue. They all lost their jobs later on. But Deng Xiaoping and Li Peng that time, the top two people refused to have a dialogue with students. So some students got really, really angry, started to shout uh, down with Deng Xiaoping, and of course this uh, um, caused more trouble. And after almost uh, two, three weeks going on like this, and the government refused and students start to have a hunger strike, are they at this point? Are they gathering in Tiananmen Square on a regular basis every mm -hmm. day? Every day. Yeah, but but organized march was uh, uh, April twenty second, April twenty seven, and May fourth. Yesterday. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's uh, organized. Tens of thousands of uh, students, a lot of them from other cities all over China, started to come in. And Hong Kong, with the uh, contribution Jimmy Lai, they donated a lot of tents for the students to camp at the Tiananmen Square. And uh, so, they, at this point, it's a movement. Yes. Yes. It became a movement. A lot of uh, citizens of Beijing joined them. Yeah. And they they bring food. They bring things. They started their own uh, broadcasting and all things. And uh, then students started to practice democracy. They started to, they established the leadership and they by votes. So they said, we want to experience democracy voting system. They have meetings, they vote. And uh, so there are some leaders, but most of the students who whose hometown or Beijing, they didn't really participate because they worry about their family's uh, safety. But most students who are leaders, they're from other cities. Um, there are some uh, graduate students, from under, some undergrad students, and uh, then they have a coalition of different universities and uh, things like that. And the question we asked, I said, how about the scholars who started to think and establish think tanks and publishing books and articles before this, like in 1986, 85, 87, where were they? They said they chose not to participate because they were already in trouble with the Chinese government some already imprisoned and released. They say, if we participate, the Chinese government have more excuse to crack down. We just let these students have a, this kind of uh, very benign kind of uh, demand and see where they can go. Yeah. So they but they supported it secretly. They had the connections with outside of China, some think tanks in the United States. They, get, they gave them money, but they have to be so secretive because Chinese, if Chinese government realizes this is connected to outside, they have more excuse to crack down the students and can give them death penalty or whatever. So that's very complicated yeah. uh, that Was, time. Did the, when did the government's response become violent? Actually, in April, Deng Xiaoping is already determined he's going to use force. And he's going to do whatever to crack this down. He already starting to mobilize militaries to move towards to Beijing. We only learned recently. He's, he's determined. There's some voices in his, uh, his uh, cabinet 
saying no, slow down, don't do this. But he's so determined. Zhao Ziyang at the time was the uh, party chairman. Deng Xiaoping never let go of. Uh, there's a three chairmanship in the central government. It's the military chairman of military, party chairman, and country chairman of the country. Since Mao Zedong time, he could let Liu Shaoqi become the chairman of the party or the chairman of the country, never let go of the chairman of the military. So Deng Xiaoping is the same thing. He holds the, the leadership of militaries he can control. Other generals try to calm him down, but he's determined. So Zhao Ziyang went to the Tiananmen Square and met with student leaders, and he was moved. He had tears. That's caused his whole career and his life. We all know that. And uh, oh, by the way, he just uh, a memoir of of Zhao Ziyang. The book just came out. I I'm hoping some people will translate it into English. It's very very important documents and historical things. Of course, it's published in Taiwan. Of course, in China, n- n- they're not going to allow this book. Uh, anyways, so uh, Deng Xiaoping mercilessly stopped all the voices against him in his. Uh, leadership and so determined to use violence yeah and and uh i i shared this article with you there's an article in foreign policy where Deng xiaoping's thinking on this was basically there can be no dissent and no matter how many individuals i destroy in this process the point is to protect the party yes protect the collective and his power and and power mm-hmm. and and that to me seems core to um, if you want to call that communism it certainly is core to that but it's core to any flavor of authoritarianism that always subjugates the value of individual life to the cause yes. and and there is no by the way there's no practical difference between his power and the cause because he defines what the cause is exactly and, and that's that's something that's Part of the reason I want to talk about the massacre at Tiananmen Square is because I think a lot of young people have it in their minds that you can separate the violence of socialism in practice or communism or authoritarianism from the um, hope that that you can reorganize society from the top down. And it it just, you can't. It's the same thing. Um, But, you know, Young people in China, young people in the United States, young people across the globe, unless they try, probably don't know what happened on June 4th in Tiananmen Square. Right. Um, And you've sort of laid it it out. Um, Was that day special before the um, military came in? And, and and created the massacre like was that was that a planned day or was that just another day in the protests okay that um i will get to that soon let me think about it uh this the government already ordered police to beat up the students as early as in april okay and uh, a lot of people I've been talking to these days, uh, they were telling you people know, that were there. They were there. They were uh, bloody and uh, whatever, and uh, so the police was already beating people uh, with the order from the government, and also military already in Beijing, military soldiers, but not the tank yet. The tank was outside mm-hmm. as early as in April, the, uh, late April, and then throughout uh, May. These days, uh, with the uh, blessing of Clubhouse, we're going day by day. From a- April 15th, we go day by day what happened. So I couldn't immediately answer your question because uh, we're not on the fourth, fourth yet. Yeah. Uh, but I can't answer you not very specific, but uh, let me give you a 
one story so you can understand where Deng Xiaoping stood and who Deng Xiaoping is. When he uh, took over China and reform started, and he immediately came to United States to visit, not Soviet Union. And uh, on the airplane, on the way to United States, in his uh, delegation uh, group, there's a scholar asked him, so why? Why do you go to United States first? He said, Deng Xiaoping said, after I look around, all the countries follow Soviet Union are still poor. All the countries following United States are rich. So I want to go to United States. And they say, oh, you're going to follow United States from now on? He said, no, just economically. I will do anything to protect communism and communist doctrines and the communist China, uh, CCP uh, power in China. That's no question about that. So that's where he, he's, at the very beginning, he's already determined. So Xi Jinping is trying to follow, but Xi Jinping is not as smart at all. He's very stupid. So he's trying to follow, but he's not going to follow uh, as smart as Deng Xiaoping to let Chinese economically still, you know, be uh, kind of free, have a capitalism. Yeah. Xi Jinping not smart enough to to allow that even. So that's why Deng Xiaoping was so determined to crack it down. So he's already uh, prepared. The day is not determined, predetermined, but led to it because the students want more dialogue. And there, by then, there's so many foreign medias were there. At the beginning, wasn't that many foreign medias there. And just happened, Gorbachev went to visit China. So a lot of foreign media came in during the student movement. And they realized what's going on in Beijing, so they didn't laugh. They didn't leave. That's why suddenly so many foreign media were in China, not because they, they knew about the student movement. It was because Gorbachev was visiting China. And that, and that made the movement far more dangerous. Exactly. And the triggered, the angered Deng Xiaoping more because the voice and the Chinese students all over the world started to march on the street. I was in Hawaii. I did too. That's way before June 4th. Yeah. We were, uh, also we knew Chinese government tried to control information. That time in the United States, uh, fax machine was household item already, but in China only certain uh, big companies or uh, foreign companies or whatever has fax machines. So we were watching medias in the United States, and we faxed the information back to China. I remember I was told, government realized that they sent armed soldier, four soldiers per fax machine in China, Hmm. guarding it to prevent the Chinese people knew what is really going on. Because China is big, outside of China, Outside of Beijing, most people don't know what's going on. So another big contributor was uh, uh, Voice of America. Most people that time had a shortwave radio already. Voice of America spread the news a lot to Chinese community because people were asking, how did the people in uh, Shanghai or in Sichuan or wherever can Guangdong knew these uh, reasons? And so they started to support the movement in Beijing. And uh, so the Deng Xiaoping is determined to get it done, crack it down. And uh, after that, more than 10,000 people were imprisoned. After the fourth. After the fourth. Anybody who were actually the 
farm media had a lot of pictures and videos. Anybody face was on the video or pictures were imprisoned. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about what happened that day. And this is a horrible story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've told it before on my show, but I think people need to understand the lengths that the government was willing to go to crush that movement, which was sparked by a modicum of freedom. And 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 it wasn't an ideological movement, but um, the the students, by all accounts I've read, were caught totally off guard by the by the army coming in and mowing people down um, with guns and then with tanks, and they were promised again and again that they would have a chance to leave, but then they weren't. Um, what what have you heard on Clubhouse from from people that were there that day? Most people, especially the uh, citizens of Beijing, they couldn't believe the military will shoot them because Chinese People's Liberation Army, People's Army. Yeah. They call them by people's, the ch- children of people's army. They call soldiers, the children of people. That's the way Chinese address soldiers. They say, how can children of the people shoot the people? So nobody could imagine that will happen. They say the most they will be blocking it. So they say, you block us, we block you. They use buses and this and that. And uh, then they were really surprised how they really dare to shoot. Actually, the tank man we saw everybody talk about is just one person. They say so many old ladies from the neighborhood. They were out there blocking the military uh, trucks, soldiers, and tanks. They were all there. Yeah. And they just couldn't believe. They were calling them. Hey, kids, how can you shoot your mom? That kind of uh, pleading. They have no weapon. They have, everybody has thermos bottle. They were delivering hot water to the student. They start throwing the thermos bottle as weapon. Yeah. And, uh, but the order is order. The, the, the military start to carry down the, the order to shoot. And they started at the beginning, they used uh, one, uh, they did it at night. Actually, it was not June 4th. It's the midnight of June 3rd, after dark. They came in without headlight. So people only heard a noise, like a thunder or earthquake. They didn't see the tanks are coming in because people were sleeping. They heard loud noise because there's so many tanks coming in and start waking up. Students were sleeping at Tiananmen Square. Some people were at home and they woke up and try to figure out what is going on. They suddenly turned on the headlight. It was so bright, people couldn't see, and they start shooting into the air first. And then the bullets start to fly. I remember my cousin said he and his girlfriend at the time just walking there and suddenly saw the bullets flying. They immediately got onto the uh, ground and crawling away. And then people are furious. You're shooting us. And started to, to stood up. And then they lowered their, uh, what do you call that, uh, cannon? Machine gun. Yeah. yeah, and start to shoot. Yeah. And uh, then they want to get rid of the evidence, so they start to run over the people they were shooting. Maybe one time you can interview this guy, Fang Zheng. He lost his, both his legs with, under the tank. And uh, it was caught on, on camera, and, uh, and uh, 
he refused to give in to tell lies. And now finally he left China uh, during the Olympic time, 2008, and now lives in San Francisco. Yeah, I met him, both of his legs. One, uh, one about 50%, one about 70%. He lost his legs. The tanks just running over people, life or dead, running over. And I also just yesterday I heard a story. This people in neighborhood in Beijing, they running out with shovels and sacks to rescue the bodies. They they get a shovel the remains and put in the sacks and dragging them away, so they could be at least in dignity. And they will bury them in the flower bed yeah. next to the street. There's countless, and they they uh, water hosed the blood. Yeah, they said 200 people, and the four military people died. And uh, one on Chinese media showing over and over how student killed this soldier and hang him on the bus. Actually, it wasn't the truth because he uses machine gun killed four people yeah. before the people went jump on him and then and beat him up and he died. And uh, they put his body there with the banner saying a murder of four innocent people. And of course the Chinese government don't show that. That's only one person really died under the student's hand. The other three uh, actually was accident, oh, total of seven, the others accident within the crowd yeah. and one military guy who died became a hero he was a military reporter he wanted to get footages but he didn't want the student to to beat him so he changed the clothes he took off his uniform he went to get the pictures and military shoot him yeah he died under his own uh, comrades bullet so that's all really lied and then uh, the Chinese government said only 200 civilian died no so there's a um, a recently released I think it was released in 2017 a British diplomat um, wrote a memo that had been under wraps until 2017 he was there and he was talking to his sources within the Chinese government and his estimate, and he, he tells lurid details of, of what happened to students, women, children, um, but he estimates 10,000 people died at Tiananmen Square, which, which is very different, obviously, from the, the government story. Um, it, it maybe doesn't matter so much that all we know for sure is that a lot of yeah. people were slaughtered, and, and the, the intent clearly was not to send a message. The intent was to eradicate them. Yes. And that's what they did. They they disappeared them physically, exactly. ground, ground them up, and, and washed them down the drain. The measure the Chinese, uh, the Deng Xiaoping and the CCP did afterward was no history. It was like that. Wipe it out. Wipe it out. And like you said, people disappeared. And at the time, immediately, what we heard was six to 8,000. Now with this, I'm not surprised, 10,000. Yeah. I'm not surprised. It's not exaggerating. But a lot of people, even the survivors, under the severe pressure of the Chinese government, they denied, they, uh, the parents, they denied they were the children were killed at Tiananmen. One lady I know of, I said this man, Fang Zheng, he lost his both legs. He was with another person with him at the same time, lost a leg also. But later on, until today, she said, I had the accident. It was a, a bus accident. He, she refused to uh, omit what tr the truth. Very few people she dare didn't, to- She didn't want to be disappeared. Or his, their parents. Yeah. All the, these people, the people who left, 
30 years ago, 32 years ago, until today they have, haven't met their parents. They couldn't. Yeah. They couldn't go back to China. Their parents couldn't go out. And uh, children also. Very sad. And uh, 10,000 uh, 10, people were imprisoned right after. A lot of citizens, a lot of students. And uh, some just, uh, my cousin's story, he wasn't participating at the uh, students' demonstration. He, he, that time, he was already finished school. He was uh, teaching in the university. He was just standing there, and he saw the student was so hot, chanting and walking and very tired. So he saw an old lady selling popsicles. He bought all the popsicles from that old lady and given to the students. Only that, he has to run for his life to United States. His son had a leukemia in China, his wife taking care. Then the son died a few years later. He, he couldn't participate in any of those. Yeah. Just yeah. because he gave popsicles to the student. So just, you can imagine the degree, the method, they, they intimidate people. That's why so many people who were there refused to say, speak out. And they try to forget about it. They don't tell their children. There's a group called the Mothers of Victims in Beijing. They're trying to collect names and numbers of people who died there. They visit all these people. Most people say, no, 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 my, my child died some other reason. And they refuse to say because it's just they need to live. They don't want to live in prison. They don't want to be disappeared. And one scholar, he was forcefully to go to the United States from prison. They just sent him on the airplane to the United States because they want him disappeared. It, it's too dangerous to execute him because he's too well known. Until today, nobody knows where his uh, citizenship is. He has no passport, nothing. He lives here. He wanted to go back to China, but there's no record he never left China. His record was still at the prison yeah. after 30 years. And, uh, and some people in and out of the prison, and uh, I just heard yesterday, one, one person, he, he was a uh, student leader, also outspoken. Just yesterday, he was... Uh, traveling somewhere and dropped off the cliff and died. It happened. One guy said he just, his uh, uh, cellmate finally got out and then took his girlfriend to Thailand for, for a vacation after prison and just car accident. Yeah. It, yeah. Countless, countless like this. So under that kind of pressure, most people try to forget or silence themselves. And I'm really encouraged by the few people. They still not let go and keep talking. You, you, I asked you this question about um, is there a thirst, uh, we're, we're talking a couple days ago, is there a thirst for freedom in China, and you hadn't told me nearly this much context, but you said yes, but they're scared to death. Yes, and uh, also I want to mention Hong Kong. You you talk about Hong Kong. Yeah. Hong Kong is a different story. From 1989 until last year, Hong Kong never stopped memorializing the June 4th victims. It was every a, year it was a big event yeah, every year organized yeah but this year they already the government already let people know if you do it it will be illegal yeah but i knew people in hong kong they're going to go there with the candle individually just to sit there without organization they're going to still do that i hope the international community will support that and start more. I was at the University of Toronto. They have a place 
have a, a statue, has a, a plaque memorializing June 4th. And uh, now the, the school at the beginning allowed that. And now more and more they, they discourage it, even forbid this. But people still gather, but less and less people from 1,000, 4,000 to 400 to last year, uh, two years ago was only like 20 something. I, I went there, was overgrown by shrubs and grass and tried to cover it. No, we cannot. If we forget, empowered, legitimized what the horrible Chinese Communist government did, the Hong Kong, because of 32 years, didn't stop. Hong Kong youth, Hong Kong students learned a true history. It's in their textbook. It's in their school. One kid said um, he grown up in a Catholic school. Every year on that day, the school had an event. Yeah. And because of that, that's why when the Hong Kong youth went onto the street, so many people participated. They knew the horror of communism. They knew the power of grassroots movement. That's why so many people participated, even though they didn't get a lot of international support and they're kind of like didn't secede, but the fire is still there. You, you called uh, Xi stupid, yeah. and it does strike me that he's destroying the, the engine that keeps the Chinese economy going by, by cracking down, uh, essentially nationalizing Hong Kong and, and consuming it back, back right. into this violent blob. I, I, it strikes me that the only reason that the students, uh, protesters in Hong Kong, didn't suffer the exact same fate as those in Tiananmen Square is that there's too much social media. Yes. There's too many cameras, right. and they couldn't do it that way, but they're doing it. It's interesting how this connects to COVID lockdowns because the rationale now for preventing protesters in Hong Kong is safety. Right. And it's all, it's all BS. It's not about safety at all. It's, it's, it's about suppressing democratic voices. Exactly. And uh, Xi Jinping did openly say many times, we don't need Hong Kong for our ex- economic uh uh, health. He was so wrong because he thought Shenzhen is uh, it's second Hong Kong. No, it's not at all. All these uh, uh, financial institutions in Hong Kong, they don't go to Shenzhen. They're in Hong Kong for a good reason because there's a rule of law. In China, there's no rule of law. Who will trust these people? to do the do business. So Xi Jinping is just very stupid and simple-minded. So he didn't know how important economically Hong Kong is for China. Yeah. And uh, I think the uh, COVID-19 is uh, somehow gave Xi Jinping some time, but it's not going to last. And also his way of locking down and hide truth, many part of the world, the government, copy it, thought that was a good model and success story. They don't know the whole truth. It's not a success story. It's not a good way to go locking down. There's no proof will prevent or stop the pandemic. China didn't. They, they blame, now they blame India. Yeah. They blame people who returned to China, brought back the, uh, the, 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 the pandemic. Now they blame foreigners. And they're still having a lot of lockdowns, and but they they lie. They yeah. say no lockdown in China anymore because we don't need to. No uh, vaccines necessary because we don't need to. We give vaccines to uh, to Brazil, to Indonesia. No, in China, if you don't get vaccine, you're going to be put in prison. Yeah, you will lose your job right now because they were so scared because it came back. Different strength of the virus came back. A lot of them no symptom anymore, not fever, not short of breath anymore. But you test positive. In China, it's, it's already like this, but the, now they're de- diverting people's attention in India. They don't report anything in China. They only report India and United States. There's, um, I, I see this again and again, uh, Western uh, uh, planners and particularly 
Americans on the left are openly embracing the Chinese model. And, and just that, that, that phrase um, gives me chills, but the Chinese model to them is, is aggressive authoritarian lockdowns followed with uh, vaccination passports um, built on the social credit system. And it's, it's built, the entire theory is built on a, a, a mountain of lies. There's no way that the Chinese data is, is right. I mean, think about the erasing the history in Tiananmen Square. Um, you were telling a story about, about Wuhan and, and the, the traditions of, of how you send off the dead. I don't know what the right phrase is, but um, explain what happened. Because they're claiming that everything's fine. They're claiming fine? only 4,000 people died. Yeah. But I think that number times 10 or even times 100, I'm not surprised because uh, people in China have a way of uh, seeing the truth. Uh, one example is uh, on the uh, fifth, fourth day of fifth month in lunar calendar in China is the tomb sweeping day. People go to their ancestors' uh, uh, tomb to burn uh, fake money and now fake iPhone, fake cars, fake Rolex, whatever, to send to the uh, dead people for them to use in uh, underground. So, so you burn things in a ceremony to send right. stuff to right. your right. deceased exactly. relatives. Exactly. And uh, this year, people, the, the line the by cars, the line going to cemeteries was so long some people waited for they couldn't get to it. And people start burning these uh, uh, paper stuffs, paper money on the street in front of their home because they couldn't go to their uh, family, dead family the members' grave, grave, uh, grave site. site. Some didn't even have a grave site because they, they got an urn of ashes. They don't even know it's their family member. They just get one. And so some of them still at home. So they start burning these things on the street because the Chinese people all live in the high rises, so they have to burn it on the sidewalk. I saw videos, almost no gaps on the street, people are burning. That tells every family has somebody died. And uh, also another indication people say how many Cell phone numbers were canceled in Wuhan. It's so huge. And your cell phone is canceled. Because you died. Because you died. Yeah, because cell phone, Chinese cell phone number are strictly uh, controlled. It's part it, of the social credit system, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, it tied to everything of you, it, your ID. Number one is your ID. Number two is your cell phone number. Then you tie to your bank account. Bank account. And uh, your job and everything. Even I try to uh, run the bicycle with my app because I don't have a Chinese uh, ID. I'm not part of the, the social credit system. I cannot even use that app to run the bicycle on the street. Yeah. And uh, it's so controlled. So only when you die. You, you give up your cell phone number. So that indicates. And that data exists and it's unfathomable. Yeah. And the people, one person risks his life to record something on the, uh, Twitter saying he, she works at the uh, crematory before they work eight hours a day. Now they said they work 24 hours a day and they pile people before they put one body at a time. Now they pile as many bodies as, as possible at a the time. They couldn't st burn uh, all the bodies delivered to their place. So the Chinese model is a lie. Total lie. So we're, we're running out of time. Um, and the question I'm about to ask you, you would probably want to spend a long time on, but I'll ask you to to respond to this um, romance that some Americans are having with the Chinese model. You escaped communism. Yes. You, you love America. 
what would you say to people that think we should be more like China? Oh, stop, stop, stop. China is under dictatorship. The, China, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is evil. There's nothing we need to learn from them. Nothing. I will ask people who are in position to stop empowering Chinese government. Stop giving them credit because those are all based on lies. And when you empower them, when you say their mother is good, we're following you, you're empowering them. And if you don't empower them, they're going to collapse in very short time because everything there is in, on the freaky, uh, sh sh shaky ground, economic, politics, everything is on a very shaky ground right now. Xi Jinping is desperate to grab something he can hold down. I think the uh, COVID-19 gave him some hope because people thought his model is good one. No, it's not true. It's also dragging other economies down with him. Exactly. So it levels the playing field downward. Right. Even his One Bell, One Road initiative is about to totally collapse because he doesn't have that much money to, to dump to bribe people. Yeah. Okay. Well, th thank you for this story. I, I learned so much today that I didn't know, and I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was awesome. You were fired up. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.